A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 58. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 20. Silsilis and Edfu, Part 1. Going, it cost us four days to struggle up from Aswan to Mahada. Returning, we slid down, thanks to our old friend, the Sheikh of the Cataract, in one short, sensational half-hour. He came, flat-faced, fishy-eyed, fatuous as ever, with his head tied up in the same old yellow handkerchief, and with the same chibouk in his mouth. He brought with him a following of fifty stalwart shellalies, and under his arm he carried a tattered red flag. This flag, on which were embroidered the crescent and star, he hoisted with much solemnity at the prow. Consigned thus to the protection of the prophet, windows and tambushi shuttered, doors closed, breakables removed to a place of safety, and everything made snug as if for a storm at sea, we put off from Mahada at seven a.m. on a lovely morning in the middle of March. The Philae, instead of threading her way back through the old channels, strikes across to the Libyan side, making straight for the big bab, that formidable rapid which as yet we have not seen. All last night we heard its voice in the distance. Now, at every stroke of the oars, that rushing sound draws nearer. The shake of the cataract is our captain, and his men are our sailors to-day, Rais Hassan and the crew having only to sit still and look on. The Shellalis, meanwhile, row swiftly and steadily. Already the river seems to be running faster than usual. Already the current feels stronger under our keel. And now suddenly there is sparkle and foam on the surface yonder. There are rocks ahead. Rocks to the right and left. Eddies everywhere. The sheikh lays down his pipe, kicks off his shoes, and goes himself to the prow. His second-in-command is stationed at the top of the stairs leading to the upper deck. Six men take the tiller. The rowers are reinforced, and sit two to each side. In the midst of these preparations, when everybody looks grave, and even the Arabs are silent, we all at once find ourselves at the mouth of a long and narrow strait, a kind of ravine between two walls of rock, through which, at a steep incline, there rushes a roaring mass of waters. The whole Nile, in fact, seems to be thundering in wild waves down that terrible channel. It seems, at first sight, impossible that any Dahabiya should venture that way and not be dashed to pieces. The sheikh, however, gives the word. His second echoes it. The men at the helm obey. They put the Dahabiya straight at that monster mill-race. For one breathless second we seem to tremble on the edge of the fall. Then the filet plunges in headlong. We see the whole boat slope down bodily under our feet. We feel the leap, the dead fall, the staggering rush forward. Instantly the waves are foaming and boiling up on deck with spray. The men ship their oars, leaving all to helm and current, and despite the hoarse tumult we distinctly hear those oars scrape the rocks on either side. Now the sheikh, looking for the moment quite majestic, stands motionless with uplifted arm, for at the end of this pass there is a sharp turn to the right, as sharp as a street-corner in a narrow London thoroughfare. 
Can the filet, measuring one hundred feet from stem to stern, ever round that angle in safety? Suddenly the uplifted arm is waved. The shake thunders, Stop it! Helm! The men, steady and prompt, put the helm about. The boat, answering splendidly to the word of command, begins to turn before we are out of the rocks. Then, shooting round the corner at exactly the right moment, comes out safe and sound with only an oar broken. Great is the rejoicing. Rais Hassan, in the joy of his heart, runs to shake hands all around. The Arabs burst into a chorus of Taibs and Salames, and Ptolemy, coming up all smiles, is set upon by half a dozen playful Shelalis, who snatch his kafia from his head and carry it off as a trophy. The only one unmoved is the shake of the cataract. His momentary flash of energy over, he slouches back with the old stolid face, slips on his shoes, drops on his heels, lights his pipe, and looks more like an owl than ever. We had fancied till now that the cataract Arabs for their own profit, and travellers for their own glory, had grossly exaggerated the dangers of the big bab. But such is not the case. The big bab is in truth a serious undertaking, so serious that I doubt whether any English boatman would venture to take such a boat down such a rapid, and between such rocks as the Shelley Arabs took the filet that day. All Dahabias, however, are not so lucky. Of thirty-four that shot the fall this season, several had been slightly damaged, and one was so disabled that she had to lie up at Aswan for a fortnight to be mended. Of actual shipwreck, or injury to life and limb, I do not suppose there is any real danger. The Shelleleys are wonderfully cool and skillful, and have abundant practice. Our painter, it is true, preferred rolling up his canvases and carrying them round on dry land by way of the desert, but this was a precaution that neither he nor any of us would have dreamed of taking on account of our own personal safety. There is, in fact, little, if anything, to fear— and the traveller who forgoes the descent of the cataract forgoes a very curious sight and a very exciting adventure. At Aswan we bade farewell to Nubia and the blameless Ethiopians, and found ourselves once more traversing the Nile of Egypt. If instead of five miles of cataract we had crossed five hundred miles of sea or desert, the change could not have been more complete. We left behind us a dreamy river, a silent shore, an ever-present desert. Returning, we plunged back at once into the midst of a fertile and populous region. All day long, now, we see boats on the river, villages on the banks, birds on the wing, husbandmen on the land, men and women, horses, camels, and asses, passing perpetually to and fro on the towing path. There is always something moving, something doing. The Nile is running low, and the Shadoofs, three deep now, are in full swing from morning till night. Again the smoke goes up from clusters of unseen huts at close of day. Again we hear the dogs barking from hamlet to hamlet in the still hours of the night. Again, towards sunset, we see troops of girls coming down to the riverside with their water-jars on their heads. Those Arab maidens, when they stand with garments tightly tucked up and just their feet in the water— dripping the gula at arm's length in the fresher gush of the current, almost tempt one's pencil into the forbidden paths of caricature. Kam Ambo is a magnificent torso. It was once as large as Dendera, perhaps larger, for, being on the same grand scale, it was a double temple and dedicated to two gods, Horus and Sebek, the hawk and the crocodile. 
Now there remain only a few giant columns buried to within eight or ten feet of their gorgeous capitals, a superb fragment of architrave, one broken wave of sculptured cornice, and some fallen blocks graven with the names of Ptolemies and Cleopatras. A great double doorway, a hall of columns, and a double sanctuary are said to be yet perfect, though no longer accessible. The roofing blocks of three halls, one behind the other, and a few capitals, are yet visible behind the portico. What more may lie buried below the surface none can tell. We only know that an ancient city and a medieval hamlet have been slowly engulfed, and that an early temple, contemporary with the temple of Amada, once stood within the sacred enclosure. The sand here has been accumulating for two thousand years. It lies forty feet deep, and has never been excavated. It will never be excavated now, for the Nile is gradually sapping the bank, and carrying away piecemeal from below what the desert has buried from above. Half of one noble pylon, a cataract of sculptured blocks, strews the steep slope from top to bottom. The other half hangs suspended on the brink of the precipice. It cannot hang so much longer. A day must soon come when it will collapse with a crash and thunder down like its fellow. Between Kam Ambo and Silsilis we lost our painter. Not that he either strayed or was stolen, but that having accomplished the main object of his journey he was glad to seize the first opportunity of getting back quickly to Cairo. That opportunity, represented by a noble duke honeymooning with a steam tug, happened halfway between Kam Ambo and Silsilis. Painter and Duke being acquaintances of old, the matter was soon settled. In less than a quarter of an hour, the big picture and all the paraphernalia of the studio were transported from the stern cabin of the Philae to the stern cabin of the steam tug, and our painter fitted out with an extempore canteen, a cook-boy, a waiter, and his fair share of the necessities of life, was soon disappearing gaily in the distance at the rate of twenty miles an hour. If the happy couple, so weary of wind-heads, so satiated with temples, followed that vanishing steam-tug with eyes of melancholy longing, the rider at least asked nothing better than to drift on with a fillet. Still, the Nile is long and life is short, and the tale told by our log-book was certainly not encouraging. When we reached Silsilis on the morning of the 17th of March, the north wind had been blowing with only one day's intermission since the 1st of February. At Silsilis one looks in vain for traces of that great barrier which once blocked the Nile at this point. The stream is narrow here, and the sandstone cliffs come down on both sides to the water's edge. In some places there is space for a footpath, in others none. There are also some sunken rocks in the bed of the river, upon one of which, by the way, a cook steamer had struck two days before but of such a mass as could have dammed the Nile, and by its disruption not only have caused the river to desert its bed at Philae, but have changed the whole physical and climatic conditions of lower Nubia, there is no sign whatever. The Arabs here show a rock fantastically quarried in the shape of a gigantic umbrella, to which they pretend some king of old attached one end of a chain with which he barred the Nile. It may be that in this apocryphal legend there survives some memory of the ancient barrier. The cliffs of the western bank are rich in memorial niches, votive shrines, tombs, historical stela, and inscriptions. These last date from the 6th to the 22nd dynasties. 
Some of the tombs and alcoves are very curious, ranged side by side in a long row close above the river, and revealing glimpses of seated figures and gaudy decorations within, they look like private boxes with their occupants. In many of these we found mutilated triads of gods, sculptured and painted, and in one larger than the rest were three niches, each containing three deities. End of section 58